Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. This time I'm going to be having a look at the writer I've just released uh, on the 24th of March, which is last Friday at the time of recording, uh, which is a write-up of Tiny Build. So let's, uh, let's start with the business overview as usual. So Tiny Build is a video game developer and publisher with global operations headquartered in the US. The company listed on the alternative investment market, AIM, of the London Stock Exchange in March 2021 for a price of £1.69 per share, equating to a market capitalisation at the time of £340 million. After, raising the lofty, after rising to lofty heights of £2.93 at its peak, the share price has plummeted to 51 pence meaning the whole company is valued at just £103 million. Quite a substantial, so about a, th a third of what it IPO'd for. And about a, f well, le less than a fifth of uh, of what the original, of what the highest point was for the share price. So, moving away from what the stock is telling us Oh, sorry, what the stock market is telling us to the business itself. I'll now cover a little of the company's history and its current business model. They started off developing and self-publishing their own games, then expanded into offering publishing services to third-party developers. After doing this for a number of years, they realized that third-party publishing is not a sustainable business. It is dependent on the success of individual titles, which comes intermittently. When a title is successful, the developer is often snapped up by a larger entity which will then gain the benefit of subsequent releases around the already proven IP. In addition, should the developer choose to stay with the publisher for future releases, development efforts are limited to the capacity of the original development team. Learning from this experience, TinyBuild has moved towards a model of acquiring the IP of successful titles and thus becoming a first and second party publisher it does this primarily through acquire hires, whereby it purchases the game IP while simultaneously hiring the development team. And it doesn't uh, necessarily uh, actually want the corporate entity, the, the developer itself. So it's not a sort of standard acquisition of having that as then a subsidiary. It actually sort of absorbs, takes the IP, brings it on, puts an asset on the balance sheet, and then it it basically contracts out the, the development team. We'll go more into that in a bit. So the deals are usually structured with an equity component so the developers remain invested in the success of the game. And we'll explore some examples of such deals later. Ownership of the IP increases profit margins and allows the company to expand a single game into a multi-game and multimedia franchise. It has successfully done so with Hello Neighbor which now has multiple games of different genres across a multitude of platforms, as well as graphic novels and an animated TV series. There are two other games in the company's portfolio for which it intends to pursue the same strategy, namely Streets of Rogue and Totally Reliable Delivery Service. So Streets of Rogue has already got a sequel, which will be the sort of first in the, uh, the multi-game series. Um, and I think there's another, there's a sequel developed for total reliable delivery servers as well. 
So Streets of Rogue is, you can look at these yourself, but this is a very much a, it's a very popular, kind of very basic indie game. I think just one guy developed it. Um, and it's what you would call class as a rogue light. So you're moving through series of levels and when you die, you restart back from the beginning again. Um, very unique game. Uh, very enjoyable, particularly playing with multiple people in co-op and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, the sequel they're, they're doing is going to be a bit of a twist on it. It's more of an open world type one, but still in the sort of top-down pixel graphics style of the original. Um, so yeah, and, and I think you see that with the Hell and Neighbor, which we're going to go into a bit more detail. They've trying to spread out with the, the new games. There'll be sort of standard games, like I think the Hell and Neighbor 2 is very much like the first game. I've not played either of them, but um, but they've done sort of auxiliary titles that are kind of different genres so like Secret Neighbor is like a, a kind of games of the service model where it's all purely online multiplayer um, uh, going around one of you plays as the as the, the neighbor in disguise and then the rest of you are all kids trying to get around the house and unlock things and evade him and so on um, and then yeah and they've also done like a kind of uh, I guess it's a base building or something like that type game the Hello Engineer um, and yeah I think similar kind of thing they, they're trying to do this this type of thing with when they build up these sort of franchises it's opportunities to bring out a bit like um, Nintendo will with the Mario IP or whatever they'll have Mario Kart they'll have you know the standard platformer kind of Mario game they'll have um other ones that are a bit more sort of tactical RPG style ones where you move around or, or any all sort all manner of different type of games to suit the different kind of people. But the main thing is they all share the same IP that draws people in. That, oh, it's Mario. That's, and that's what same kind of thing that applies to like um, Warner Brothers Discovery or whatever. When if you've got only, if you own the IP like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or whatever, or Game of Thrones stuff like that you've got so many that automatically just draws people in. Just the fact that just the IP itself. And having that sort of franchise is the really crucial. That that's what makes games that can often be quite similar in terms of the dynamics. There are a lot of competitors, but having the actual IP that people know or something, when people are trying to choose, often they're drawn to it, and that that's that's the value of of owning uh, already established IP. Right. So let's um let's have a look. So alongside more traditional game releases, the company has recently expanded out into games as a service, GAAS, and acquire and the, uh, with the acquire hire of Bad Pixel. So I, I say this, but they obviously also had a bit of a games as a service thing going on with some of the Hello Neighbor, one of the Hello Neighbor games, the Secret Neighbor one. But yeah, they've they've expanded that now with uh, the acquire hire of Bad Pixel, and they are the developers of Deadside, a first-person post-apocalyptic shooter and survival game. So this is, uh, if you've played games like um, uh, what are they called? Those, the standard, it's a kind of a bit of a Fortnite, that type. Not not exactly, but it um, much more um, I can't I think there's I'm blanking on the name now, but there's quite a few games already established in this kind of area. But this one's trying to be, and it and it fits in with this nice sort of first-person shooter going around, um, uh, 
playing against other players there's some AI in there as well um, who are apparently quite difficult and there's sort of base building elements to it and uh, um, some kind of cool things like if if somebody dies um, there's a chance of them dropping like a, a kind of card that um, it's like a tag that tells you where because uh, they'll respawn back at their potentially back at their base that they've been building it tells you the location of that base and I think it's like a, like a raid ticket or something like that and then it base the bases which are normally areas that um, are kind of safe spaces if you if they if somebody dies in, and they're out in the open and they drop this thing then that becomes like a target that everybody can attack it's pub publicized and it um, for the next hour or something that base is then eligible to be attacked and you can do like you know a siege type attack on it or what have you um raid on it so yeah it's uh some interesting dynamics it looks really good this is like the kind of game i would uh i would like to play but um but for lack of time but yeah it's uh it's great and it's and since the and we'll go on here but since they uh they actually acquired this company um they've taken the initial concept which is already doing well and um started to plow a bit more money into it expand the development team from just seven developers to i think 20 now as of their last reporting and they've been able to with that injection of cash they've been able to add particular features and massively and market it better and and they've really significantly grown the player base just in the first few months since they um since they owned the ip uh yeah so and i'm sort of saying that here and so this game is still in early access but has significantly grown its player base since time build acquired the ip and began deploying its resources towards it and then which is what I was saying there and as of March last year March 2022 when the company's financial year 2021 annual report was published it was their best selling game on Steam yeah it's uh, yeah, it's got a lot of reason that it's, it's only on Steam at the moment and like I say early access so it's kind of like uh, this beta stage uh, where they're getting feedback people pay a lower price to to get the game at this early stage and then when it matures they'll get the full copy or whatever in the future but um and it's but it still is all the, the fully online games as service kind of model um at the moment massively uh, mmo as well um let's have a look so the company has also developed yeah, sorry, that's just what I was saying. That the company has also developed a game with within the Hello Neighbor franchise that fits the games of the service model, Secret Neighbor. Yeah, as I said, um, and an iOS version of this game was released largely for marketing purposes, which topped the charts with four million downloads in the first few days. Yeah, so it's a. Uh, I mean, I think overall the Hello Neighbor franchise, as the as of the last sort of reported amount they said was, I think the first game totaled something like 70 million downloads it really uh, blew up and it's quite an interesting story because when they when that game was originally released back in I think 2016 it was just a complete flop and, and this was before the company owned it um, and they basically did the old acquire hire model uh, they saw the potential of it and it received terrible like critical reviews and so on but um, they bought the IP the game and the put the development team on and reworked it a bit and then did another release in 2017 and it sort of just became a big hit and it's something that works it's a it's a game and I particularly like um, it's a game that works well with the 
the sort of influencer. It's something that influencers can play through. It really uh, draws a lot of people. I mean, we'll get onto all that stuff later, but, but yeah, the, the, just the, the message they're doing and the, like the um, the iOS stuff, like, you know, in this case, making a, a game for iPhones, um, largely for marketing purposes, and they're not they're not making any money from it. It's a completely free game, but it just it draws people in. It just expands the the value of the of the brand. In this case, Hello Neighbor and so on, um, and it expands it out and it. Yeah, people. It, it, it just overall just getting more and more eyes on this thing, and more and more people knowing the Hello Neighbor uh, brand and franchise means future releases are just it, the chances of being successful just increases and increases. It compounds on itself. Um, so let's have a look. So the multiplayer games as a service model has the potential to create games with extreme longevity and play times that are orders of magnitude greater than linear games. This is an area in which the board has considerable experience with the CEO being an ex-pro gamer and a non-executive director who was previously co-president of Activision Blizzard, the original games as service and MMO company. Yeah, so it's interesting with, and in one of the owners calls, the, um, the CEO was talking about this. I mean, he, he has something like, he was saying he's got, it's, it's, it's said most people can't fathom this, but he's got something like 20 games in his library which he's put more than a thousand hours into and they're always in this games as a service model um and you know it's like people and for instance with the activision blizzard um you've got the world of the warcraft people have put yeah, been playing that for well over a decade at this point and it's still you know still really really loyal popular fan base and breaking in the money for it with their with their con you know new releases every every year or or, or more uh, frequently and people just still craving it and I think once you get one of these established IPs that, that really have these people that I mean and obviously with Activision Blizzard they've also got the Call of Duty and one of their most successful games of recent years has been Call of Duty Warzone which is a free to play online one very much in the game as a service model and um yeah like the ceo mentioned he's put over a thousand hours into that one as well so uh yeah it's uh it's probably one of his most played games right now um so yeah just just this idea that you can you compare it to the standard game maybe like you just play through the campaign of a normal type of game you get about 30 hours it's done there's not really much replayability there it's unlikely people would go over 100 hours on most most games uh, they're just sort of a the linear standard linear model it's where you have replay bit and it doesn't necessarily have to be a game as a service like games are like um like i was saying like the roguelite type games where you you die and you come back and restart from the beginning and you sort of maybe there's some sort of stuff that persists between each run and so on those kind of games can be quite addictive and people do or like other games like simulator type games like Stardew Valley or whatever um, being one of the most popular ones where they you could just put hundreds or thousands of hours into those and they just um, anyway trying to pursue that kind of model I think is is really a good direction for any kind of uh, games publisher because it really locks people in and you just clock those hours and you can um, and monetizing that it, it just extends the life of the game if you've got I mean it's the same thing with um this is what gives paradox interactive such a high valuation for instance 
their strategy games uh, can last many years if they they hit ones like uh, uh, like Europa um, and uh, Hearts of Iron and uh, sort of Crusader Kings stuff like that. Those games of and Victoria would two or three or whatever. Those kind of games. Um, really do have a lot of longevity to them people playing them for many years because uh, they are just sort of very long-term games you can those kind of strategy games very replayable and they can the game plays out completely differently on different runs and yeah, that that's the key i think to for that's really the uh, the best model for games really for where you don't have that getting away from the cycle of with your standard little triple a games where you put a game out, and it the sales just drop off dramatically after the first, you know, initial sales period, a couple of months or whatever, and then you just get a little boost whenever you have like a sale in the future. Um, but generally, there's it, there's not really much persistency beyond a, a year. Um, yeah, if, if you can get games, and I mean, I'm going to talk about this in a bit. Um, but even like some of these indie games and stuff like that, like I was saying, the rogue light ones and stuff, are still like top sellers. Um, even like a decade on, it's just it's just crazy. And especially when you the triple uh, with the um, indie games as well, like graphics is. You know, with the triple A games, people are just striving for the ah oh, the next graphical, you know, amazing, better and better graphics and performance and what have you, better visuals, and that stuff's always improving. So. A game soon looks dated, and people um, soon moving on from it. And, and whereas when you get the sort of the more independent developers sort of indie games, pixel art, and so on, those things can can last for a very long time without um, because they're never they were never striving to be this visually amazing thing. There, well, the pixel art is is quite beautiful on its own, but it's a very different style. It's not trying to be super realistic or anything. But anyway, let's have a look. So, on the subject of longevity, it's also worth mentioning that many of the company's most successful indie titles are still making significant contributions to overall sales, with some appearing in the top 10 daily bestsellers even after a decade. This really sets these games apart from AAA games whose sales drop off dramatically after the initial release and removes a lot of the cyclicality from the business results. To put this into figures for you, the company's back catalogue contributed 83% of revenue in financial year 2021, which was a record for the company. So yeah, it just shows you when you, if you can get with developers of these sort of more, in, um, more you know, smaller get not the tr non-AAA games. These games can, and this and tiny sort of back catalogue here producing 83%. I think in um, H1. 2021 it was like 99 percent back catalog but the ceo has mentioned that this is a bit you know because they release a lot of their games early access as well this sometimes can be a bit misleading because a game might be an early access for over a year and um going through various sort of stages before the the later release and yet and and it might just be released onto consoles and a fresh thing but it's still a fresh release which then brings in loads of sales, but it's still counted as back catalogue because it's actually an older game that's just been ported across or uh, just left the beta stage effectively, um, but it was still being sold while in that early access sort of beta stage. So it's a bit misleading, but um, 
but yeah just the general principle that a lot of these games are older than a year and they're um and they're still contributing substantially to the to the company and and um and when it's doing these acquire hires and so when it's acquiring that ip each time those games are generally living on for multiple years and continuing to produce uh for the company like uh tiny build still um a top seller for instance, uh, not, uh, not uh, Streets of Rogue, still a top seller for the company. Um, and they, even after, you know, it's been around for quite a long time, uh, Graveyard Keeper is another example. Yeah, we've got some, some great ones. So, um, games usually begin life on PC gaming platforms like Steam or Epic Games, but successful titles will be ported to other platforms in order to reach the widest possible audience. This includes PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo Switch consoles, as well as mobile and VR. So they, yeah, they've got one uh, VR game, in which I forgot to mention, in the um, Hello Neighbor franchise. So yeah, expanding out onto new platforms. And this was all, also includes like um, the Steam Deck and so on. And I think the key point I'm trying to make here is that the company is very much technology agnostic. Their games, and they're very happy for all these competitors because it means that they can get great deals like I'm going to mention here getting like um, put into subscription bundles for like Xbox Games Pass for instance with Microsoft or similar things with other ones and um, on the PlayStation and so on so it's they get quite good deals because these companies are all and the more competitors come into the space the more ways they're able to reach players and the best the better sort of deals they're able to get so having new innovative consoles and stuff like that is not something that scares the company off at all new you know if the metaverse really comes in and people you know vr starts becoming a great way that's not something that's not a threat to the company at all it's a it's an opportunity for them to expand because their games will transfer across to whatever medium so yeah more recently tiny build has started signing deals with companies like microsoft to bundle games into their subscription services e.g xbox games Pass. So uh, many of the strategies mentioned help to de-risk game releases. For example, producing new games in an established franchise greatly increases the chance of success. Equally, when developing new IP, starting with a single platform, e.g. Steam, and releasing the game in early access allows the company to test the waters and receive feedback from gamers while the game is still in development, before committing major capital to its release. Pre-signing deals with platforms has also become a strategy used by management to secure upfront funding and de-risk development. This predominantly applies to new releases in existing franchises. So yeah, if like the um the, so they'll be signing deals with sort of back catalogue things. Um uh yeah, game just to sort of get Microsoft wants to fill out their Xbox Games Pass with lots of games to attract people to, to get it. And uh so yeah a lot of sort of back catalogue games might be uh put in on deals with that. Um, which is a great way to squeeze some extra money out of them, um, and while they're still popular. But yeah, just give it another another source of revenue for it. And then you've got um, yeah, but then the new releases like you've got once you start getting franchises like uh, Hello Neighbor, which is already they already know is. I mean, I think the new uh, Hello Neighbor Two, just the beta, had more down downloads than the original game. Is uh, more downloads just in the in the few weeks that the beta was out uh, than the 
the original game had in its whole uh, life. So this, um, yeah, the power of the franchise there, you know, the, the people have got established within the brand and it, waiting for, the, looking out for the next title in, in the series. Um, yeah, that's very attractive to companies like, you know, Microsoft, whatever, that want to draw people to their subscription services if they can say, oh, the next game and the Hell and Neighbor franchise is on here or whatever, or, or um, any any other franchises to get that the company develops over time. Yeah, it's a it's a great great um, option now that's starting to present itself more as the game as its IP expands in popularity. But like I say, also an option for some of their sort of back catalogue games, um, which are sell well, and myself wants to sort of or other services want to bundle in with their subscription things. I'm guessing like a Nintendo Online might be something else that they could look at and I'm, I'm, I don't know whether PlayStation has a similar sort of um, thing to the Microsoft, to the Xbox Game Pass. So uh, yeah, finally on the business overview we've got, so something else worth mentioning is that the company has a 49% stake in DevGam LLC an Eastern European focused game development conference founded and run by the CEO's wife, Lerica Malayeva, who owns, sorry, who retains 51% ownership. Uh, in 2021, the conference had around 1,800 companies attend from nearly 40 different countries. So uh, that was a bit of a mix of, depending on COVID restrictions, online and in person, but their events are definitely well attended from the uh, the pictures you can see of them and it's uh, the fact that they're used to I mean the company's focus on I don't think I mentioned this in here but the company's focus on access because of the uh, we'll get onto it with the founder I believe is Russian um, as a CEO and um, but yeah certainly uh, there's a there's a lot of they've got he's got very close links to uh, European, uh, Eastern European countries, and so on, and that's that's only a small part of their overall business operations. They are globally distributed. They've got people in in other European, more developed European countries. They've got people. They've got teams in in North America. They've got teams in South America. They've they are, they've got teams all over. Um, but the Eastern European presence is a is a really thriving market for game development. A lot of great games coming out of Eastern Europe, and a lot of great development teams, Eastern Europe and Russia, and so on. And um, actually having access to that, a lot of the bigger companies, you know, haven't necessarily got that connection to Eastern Europe that allows um, allows them to get access to these things. So the companies, and the, with this this game, this gaming conference is a really amazing way for them to really break in and, and get access to these and holding these events in Eastern Europe is um, yes, yeah, it's, it's incredible to get access to these these up and coming markets that a lot of the bigger sort of US developers or whatever wouldn't have but obviously the company is is based in Delaware in the US but um, yeah, like I say globally distributed um, yeah, so for accounting purposes, DevGam is treated as a subsidiary and so profits owed to the the other party are shown in the income statement as non-controlling interests. Lerica was paid 
$148,000 in a dividend by the subsidiary during H1 2022. So I've had some people um, feedback and say they're a bit confused by uh, what I was sort of saying here. So just to try and make it a bit clearer. So she is treated as a subsidiary because previously the company owned the majority stake. Um, but she actually, uh, Larica Malieva actually runs the company. She's the uh, CEO of DevGam LLC. And as a part of it, conditional on her remaining uh, with the you know, running the company, um, she her stake was increased up to fifty one percent. So she's actually has the sort of the controlling stake there. But that's conditional on her staying with it. She left and tries to go off elsewhere and just becomes a a passive shareholder of Devcam LLC. Then that would re reduce and the com um, tiny board would become the majority owner again so a little bit complex but and like the dividend in this case being paid out was i imagine probably the way she's taking her salary um as the owner it probably makes more sense to have it sort of structured like that um from a sort of tax purposes and so on so i hope that i hope that closed that up um so let's have a look at uh m a murder and acquisition so I outlined the company's M&A strategy earlier, so let's now have a look at some recent examples. Tinybird was very busy in 2021 with seven acquisitions for a total upfront payment of $25.5 million in cash and shares. These included We're 5, maker of the developer of the Totally Reliable Delivery Service, and Hungry Couch, Black Sky producer uh, developer of Black Skylands in February, Doghelm, which is Streets of Rogue, in June, and Animal, which is a developer of Rawman, in August. All these deals involved the purchase of the game IP and bringing the development teams on board as contractors, so the standard kind of acquire hire model the company employs. Um, then had a slightly different type of transaction, um, more of a an acquisition of the an actual company rather than uh, the acquire an acquire hire. So in twenty twenty in sep uh, September of twenty twenty one, the company made its most ambitious acquisition to date, of Versus Evil, a U.S. based publisher, and its red and its subsidiary Red Cerberus, Red Cerberus, a gaming services provider that provides quality assurance. That's the main service they provide. Uh, the intent with this acquisition was to expand the company's publishing capacity and also diversely integrate quality assurance into the company, thus reducing dependence on external providers. So, something to mention here, and I possibly mention it later on, but um, Versus Evil is largely a third-party publisher, so the margins, the gross margins aren't quite as good, and I know all the, the aforementioned problems we were talking about um, with uh, not owning the IP, not being able to do everything you can with it and having successful titles, not being able to expand them out and not necessarily being able to keep, um, to do, to publish sequels and subsequent releases within a, a given franchise or within a given IP because um, they might, they've got the option to move to other developers other publishers um, so yeah it's uh, it is an inferior model and and now that they've 
acquired versus evil they're going to transition them to being a lot you know going along with the tiny build model so future releases any particular good ones they're going to try and they'll be trying to bring that ip on board uh, so after having worked teams that they've been working with and now that they've got versus evil they've got all of the previous development teams that they've got relationships with and so on are all potential candidates for acquisition so really expanded out um the pool of uh, talent they can they can draw on and, and businesses they can acquire i mean I, I, it really should be emphasized i mean tiny board should appeal very much to anybody that likes the uh the um the sort of uh what do they call it there the acquisition yeah the, the the acquisition train type business the roll up type business having um going around an industry and acquiring all the the smaller players and like i mean everybody touts constellation software for instance or kelly partners group with accounting so it's, it's very much the similar kind of thing you know um picking up small accounting software business uh not software but small accounting firms or whatever these kind of things where you've got a really big distribution of small players that um can all be picked up and integrated into the thing and expanded and and uh and all the synergies of being able to publish them market them uh add to inject money into the teams and so on um and get them at cheaper prices because they're smaller than lots of liquid and so on and having the expertise to be able to keep um developing and and publishing their ip it's not something that uh, like a private equity can, can, wouldn't it wouldn't be attractive to a private equity company to come along and just pick up a small developer for five or ten million dollars or whatever because they wouldn't necessarily have the the network and the links and so on to get the most out of the acquisition. So really attractive and and there's just literally probably in the thousands of develop of great small development studios all over and they're popping up all over the place with you know new. You guys, it's the, the barrier to entry of creating a development studio is tiny. You know, you, you just these guys, uh, hobbyists, creating games, expanding it out, um, and you know, building up from there. It's, and there is just this wealth of games, but those guys just get lost in the noise of uh, all the games being released. And so, having it's really crucial to have um, have that ability to, you know having the ability to publish and, and reach have the marketing reach and so on and the networks and, and everything with the with all of the uh, distribution platforms and, and so on is a really massive advantage and really allows um, games that otherwise would have just disappeared by the wayside like Her Neighbor for instance one of Tiny Bill's most successful titles um, was not successful prior to being acquired so you know it just shows it really shows you the benefits of that Tiny Bill can bring as a publisher of these games, so it's just an absolutely uh, fertile ground for going for them to go around and pick up these small developers. And um, yeah, there's uh, there's plenty plenty of of room for for growth through this of this method. It's, they're not going to run out of acquisition tar acquisition targets anytime soon. So um, the final acquisition of 2021 was the aforementioned acquire hire of Dead Pixel, which took place in September. Moving to 2022, the company made a further three acquisitions, the first of which was the acquire hire of DMagic in April. What sets this, transi this transaction apart was that it was pure, involved purely 
sorry, was that it pu involved purely the development team and not any IP. I believe DMagic might have been particularly attractive to the company because of its um, porting capabilities, so porting games across between different platforms. Um, again, trying to improve that vertical integration capability of the company so they're not dependent on any external providers uh, for for any of these kind of crucial uh, things that would would otherwise if they would, would otherwise um, limit the uh, the ability for them to release games and, and slow down the release if they don't have the in teams for this sort of in-house so yeah getting this inverted integration is a real um, real benefit to the company so in August they made the opposite kind of transaction acquiring only the IP of several Bossa Studios titles um, and I just want to say here, so Bossa Studios, we'll get onto it later, the uh, chairman of the board, Henrique Olivier, is, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, is the, C the uh, CEO and founder of Bossa Studios. So there is a, uh, this is in a way, this is therefore a related party transaction. Um, they've, Tiny Bird has acquired some titles from his company effectively. Uh, just, just worth mentioning there. Also in August, they acquire hired Confa Games, which is the maker of Despo's game, in a deal that involved both staff and IP. So another acquire hire. So it will be instructive to look at a transaction in more detail so you have a better understanding of the typical deal structure. For this example, we'll focus on the acquisition of Doghelm, which again is uh, the developer of Streets of Rogue as it fits into the more standard acquire hire model. The consideration for the deal includes both upfront and deferred payments over the following three years. The deferred payments are variable depending on stretching operational targets being met, but have a maximum total consideration of $6.5 million, split approximately 50-50 between cash and newly issued equity. As part of the initial consideration, the company issued 166,204 new common shares at a price of 254 pence per share. And these shares were subject to a 12-month lockup period. A very crucial point here that applies to all the deals signed to date is that the compensation is based on cash values and so the number of newly issued shares will vary depending on the share price. Given that the share price is currently 80% lower than the price at which the aforementioned deal was signed, we can expect dilution to be 5x that anticipated. This risk becomes even more substantial with the larger transactions made in the second half of 2021. I contacted Investor Relations with my concerns and they told me that while they were valid, the management have put in place measures to mitigate against unanticipated levels of dilution. We'll have to wait until the annual results for financial year 2022 have been released before finding out exactly what these measures are, but I suspect they will involve share purchases on the market to offset dilution. So their results are coming out next week, so uh, we should find them out pretty soon. Um, the board has approved the creation of an employee benefit trust that will purchase shares on the open market for use in share-based compensation. 
This is funded by a loan from the company of up to $10 million and the pre-closed tr trading statement released in January 2023 uh, stated that management, sorry, yeah, stated that the trust has purchased 154,300 shares. So it's already starting to to make use uh, to purchase shares for the for future compensation, share-based compensation. It's plausible that this employee benefit trust will be used to purchase shares to facilitate contingent consideration payments from acquisition deals, particularly in cases where the recipients are contracted employees of the company. Management stated in their H1 earnings call that they plan to make future acquisitions predominantly with cash while the share price remains at depressed levels and have secured $35 million, a $35 million credit facility should larger deals require additional funding. So just to put this in perspective, I think right now they're contingent on their balance sheet. They've got contingent um, liabilities, which is well they recognize these share-based payments that owed uh, for acquisitions for deferred payments. They've estimated it based on what they think the performance of the, uh, the acquirees is going to be. Um, because I said it was variable, the amount they would get, you know, based on uh, various various metrics, I think um, adjusted EBITDA and stuff like that were um, were some of them. Uh, yeah, based on what they think the to the total could be for the, what they recognise on the balance sheet, I think it's something like eleven million dollars at the moment, and um, we'll we'll go into these numbers later, but. $11 million, to put that in perspective, the current share price of around about uh, 50 pence a share would mean you'd be looking at um, yeah something something around the 18 to 20 million pound uh, eight, sorry, 18 to 20 million shares being issued which would be a considerable amount of dilution, probably something like uh, 8 to or not yeah, it's something like eight to ten percent dilution if they didn't if they didn't do take any action here, um, and that would be over a couple of years because they're like I said with the payments being over sort of three years for for most deals. Um, but yeah, quite considerable, and it's obviously a lot more than they were anticipating. They were probably thinking it was going to be about a fifth of that, so probably two, you know, one to two percent dilution that it was going to they were expecting really um, or, or maybe 2-3% to or something but um, yeah obviously a lot more and, and so I think it's quite likely that they'll be hoovering up some shares on the market while they're currently at these depressed prices to to offset that and the and as I've said uh, they, they've got a, an awful lot of cash on the balance sheet still and a, a credit facility as well of $35 million which as of their last filings was undrawn um, so yeah got a lot of options you know they could easily it, it would make a lot of sense to you know over the next couple of years spend $10 million in cash to, to buy the required amount of shares I think it's something like $4 million in the next uh, this year coming and then it'll be another um, six million or seven million after that. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, something I ho I'm I'm hoping they're going to do, and it, it would make a lot of sense. And as 
it's in the interests of the uh as we'll get on to later the uh the management still owns an absolute you know massive stake in the in the company so it's very much in their interest to to avoid this kind of dilution as well but just something to be bear in mind that in the worst case scenario if they didn't do anything you could be looking at something close to 10% dilution in the in the next year but anyway um I've been given assurances that's not going to happen exactly like that or at least it'll be reduced um, but we'll have to see and I've I've asked if if you want to they've got an earnings call I believe on the 29th or maybe the 30th uh, next week uh, if you go on I think it's investormeetcompany.com they uh they're doing a public um event uh, earnings call effectively on their presentation where anybody can join in and it's is open to the public rather than just being an analyst only type thing um so yeah you you can join there and you can pre-ask questions i've got a couple of questions loaded in so hopefully uh they'll get answered um pretty much covering this kind of thing so one about the uh that dilution as i was mentioning there and the other question is more about um when you see the executive compensation it's largely based around adjusted it a bit there um metrics and i would have preferred it to be earnings per share based so it would defend against these kind of uh growth in in the in the level of earnings through uh dilution effectively through buying companies with by issuing shares and therefore diluting the but actually paying a price that means the the earnings per share is is reduced um so yeah protecting against that making sure that every acquisition even if shares are issued which is fine and like as it is fits with their model of trying to bring the developers into the company and and uh having them like feel like on feel like entrepreneurs within the company and so on and still re retaining the i effectively some ownership of their ip so they can they're incentivized to to keep working with the company and not to not to disappear off and there's lock-in periods and so on normally 12 months for each deal as well um so yeah my so key point here is that um that would be that would be beneficial but there is still i'm guessing the answer that comes back to me is probably for that particular one is going to be, be that they um you know the the with the own management's ownership which i think is like 37.5% for the CEO and like 7% for the COO which is like the two original founders um, is going to be enough to you know dissuade this kind of action but uh, yeah and it's fine if, if they're issuing out these shares and then the uh, the earnings per share level is still actually increasing so they're, uh, they're accretive deals effectively in that sense it doesn't really matter too much if they are issuing shares to do it as long as the the overall earnings of the company attributable to each shareholder is still increasing that's how i how i view it yeah and they've obviously got these for the internal sort of share-based conversation they've got this employee benefit trust the reason i thought it might be um possible that this employee benefit trust would be used for these kind of uh share-based conversations is that because these guys that they or girls that they're getting on from the development teams are um are now contracted employees of the company that these deferred payments could potentially be seen as 
share based compensation because they are the amount is variable on their performance and so on so it is very much like a sort of the company's annual bonus scheme or or other um, things yeah anyway moving on let's have a look at marketing now this is uh, an area that I think the company really excels and stands out from a lot of its competitors so uh, and is one of the reasons why they've some of their you know the hello neighbor franchises has been able to do so well Let's have a look. TinyBuild takes a grassroots approach to marketing that has proven highly efficient and effective. The company has cultivated strong relationships with over 10,000 verified influencers that together have helped achieve over 5 billion content-related views on YouTube. Yeah, 5 billion. These relationships are highly symbi symbiotic as the games produced by TinyBuild are very suited to driving engagement allowing influencers to monetize their channels while marketing the game on the company's behalf. The company also has a significant social media presence of its own, with more than 1.5 million followers across all social media platforms, giving them direct access to consumers when promoting upcoming titles. This is substantially more than comparable competitors, including Devolver Digital, Paradox Interactive, 11-Bit, and Team17. I think the closest one was Devolver Digital with like 700,000 so yeah it's a, a massive a massive jump up from there in terms of the company's reach on social media. Another way in which the company directly connects with consumers is to involve them in alpha and beta testing. The feedback received is used to focus development on the most well received game characteristics and thus ensure that titles reflect consumer trends on launch. Speaking to the efficiency of the company's marketing approach, they typically spend less than 7% of annual revenue on marketing. This figure is pretty astounding when you consider the reach they have been able to achieve. So another thing I want to mention before going on to the financials is um, employee, reten employee retention. So TinyBuild want all their employees to feel and operate like entrepreneurs within the company. This is achieved in part by giving them equity stakes, but it also comes as a byproduct of the fact that most employees belong to groups that were originally independent development studios prior to their acquisition and still operate largely autonomously. That kind of uh, devolved, oh, the, um, yeah, the decentralized um, operation called model. The company has a strong focus on employee welfare with strict policies against crunching. In a more extreme example, they last year they spent $2 million evacuating all 50 of their staff members from Russia and relocating 30 staff members based in Ukraine to the western part of the country, away from the fighting. At one point, the CEO was even housing multiple families in his own home while more permanent accommodation was found for them. All these actions have cultivated a strong sense of loyalty among employees that is evidenced by the company having one of the lowest levels of staff turnover in the industry, in the low single digits compared to an industry average of 15.5%. They are very good stuff to read really when you look into these things. And that um, $2 million is pretty much a, you know, a one-off exceptional cost to get everybody out. Um, and just, yeah, quite amazing that they did that, you know, took those steps uh, to bring this get the staff out and relocate them really shows that they do care for the workforce 
Right, so let's now um, let's now move on to have a look at the the financials and we'll start with the the income. So for the year ended 31st December 2021, revenue was 52,153,000 uh, compared to financial year 2020, it was 37,648,000. So this is a 38.5% increase on the year before. This outstripped the growth in cost of sales, which is 19.8% growth, leaving gross profit margin improved at 65.3%. And so financial year 2020, it was 59.8%. Operating expenses for the period were $21,509,000, comprising general administrative expenses of 14 million $469,000 share-based payment expenses of $2,452,000 and IPO-related costs of $4,588,000. Subtracting these, these from the gross profit gives an operating profit figure of $12,532,000 compared to financial year 2020 of $7,664,000 and an operating profit margin of 24% compared to 2020 of 20.4%. Removing a further $8,000 for finance costs, so basically nothing, and $4,281,000 for income tax, we get the net profit of $8,243,000. This is 2020, which was $4,948,000 and net profit margin of 15.8% compared to financial year 2020 of 13.1%. This equates to 4.3 cents per share using the shares outstanding at the time or 4 cents per share with the most recent share count. Allowing for the dilution uh, since then. Additionally, the management provides an adjusted EBITDA figure which removes depreciation and amortization except for amortization of capital of capitalized software development costs. Share-based sorry. So it, it removes the depreciation and amortization but not the amortization of software development costs which are seen as um st standard sort of expenses effectively. Um and uh, share-based payment costs, acquisition costs, other non-recurring items, IPA-related costs, and other operating income, which was nil in 2021, but had a small value the year before. From the operating profit figure, after excluding this rather long list of items, we get an adjusted EBITDA figure of 22,239,000 compared to financial year 2020 of 15,275,000. In, in the notes to the financial statements, we are given a breakdown of the company's revenue by class and timing. We can see that games and merchandise royalties made up the majority of revenues with smaller contributions from development services and events. So development services also includes um, creating games, sort of, uh, on commission, well, uh, having games commissioned by like Microsoft or whatever, like that to be 
released on their plat their platform or whatever. Uh, but it also includes obviously the now that they've got um, like companies that do porting and stuff like that. If they've got if they've not got enough titles to fill all their time uh, with porting so, so on, they'll uh, do stuff at third parties. And similarly with quality assurance and things like that, they'll do stuff for third parties as well. So that would count as uh, still as development services uh, income. Uh, yeah, revenue there. Um, so yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys have a look at the figures yourselves. Um, but generally, it's the largest contribution is coming from games and merchandise royalties, and then probably about around about a quarter of it uh, of that figure is then coming from development services, and then eight hundred five thousand from events, which is the dev gam stuff. Um, we also do a breakdown by timing of revenue, so you can see that uh, effectively it's just adding the games and merchandise royalty revenues to the events revenue is transferred at a specific point in time. So that's just paid on an event or whatever, um, on an event occurring like a delivery of a game or whatever. Um, and then you've got, or hosting of an event in a physical event. And then you've got the development services are paid over, are transferred over a, a period of time. So, if you're developing, a, if they're developing a game and getting some prepayment from Microsoft or whatever, they'll get some. It's very much the model that they would use if they're commissioning a developer to develop a game. They'll give them some initial uh, payment, and then it'll be a, as they hit different milestones, they'll get paid there. And uh, yeah, so that's. Uh, the development services are transferred over time, so the figures exactly match that. So the company's um, game and merchandise royalty revenue can be further divided between own IP and third-party IP. In financial year 2021, own IP generated 30640000 and in financial year 2020, this was $24,683,000 in revenue. and third-party IP generated 9,231,000 uh, compared to the previous year of 9,239,000. It's interesting to see from these figures that all the growth in royalty revenue for the year came from own IP rather than third-party IP, which is in line with their stated strategy. So yeah, they're doing about the same level of third-party publishing effectively. Um, but growing their own IP substantially as they're bringing in new stuff and just producing more stuff internally. So that's what they wanted to focus on. Um, yeah, so it's now about the own IP is generating three times the revenue of the third party stuff. So uh, moving on to H1 2022, revenue came in at 28,750,000 compared to H1 of 2021 of 18,626,000 with a gross profit margin of 68.5%. Uh, this was compared to H1 2021 of 70.7%. So the gross profit margin decreased slightly due to the consolidation of lower margin businesses, in this case versus Evil and Red Cerberus. So yeah, the game service business is going to be lower uh, margin and obviously we were saying that versus Evil is 
pretty much exclusively a third-party publisher at the time of acquisition so lower margin as well so the versus evil the publisher can certainly be increased the margins there so you expect that to come up but obviously having the services business it's unlikely for those margins to massively increase um, so uh, yeah that, that's expected to think but obviously there's it has a lot of other benefits to the rest of the business um, so operating profit was six million eight hundred and five thousand compared to six hundred and eighty nine thousand for H1 2021 calculated by subtracting twelve million dollars in administrative expenses and eight hundred and eighty seven thousand in share based payments expenses from the gross profit figure of nineteen million six hundred and ninety two thousand compared to H one twenty one of thirteen million one hundred and seventy seven thousand. The substantial increase over the prior year can be explained by the fact that the IPO related costs were front loaded in the first half of twenty twenty one. Net profit for the period was four million four hundred eighty three thousand, compared to a two hundred ninety seven thousand dollar loss in H one twenty twenty one, equating to two point two cents per share, uh, and in H one twenty twenty one, a point one cents per share loss. So again, due to the the loss, uh, the uh, the costs being substantially front loaded um, for, for the IPO and so on in the first half of the year. So management's adjusted EBITDA figure was given as nine million eight hundred eighty-two thousand versus uh, nine million uh, seven million nine hundred and five thousand in H one twenty twenty-one. This figure accounts for exceptional expenses of $1 million incurred during the relocation of staff out of Ukraine and Russia during the conflict. So yeah, $1 million was incurred, was recognized in the first half, but subsequently this has gone up to $2 million um, for expenses in the second half. And that includes like legal costs and so on, getting visas for everyone sorted and all that kind of stuff for relocating them. Quite an expensive process. So... Um, yeah, so, uh, revenue contributions from own IP increased to 83% uh, versus 78% in H121, driven by strong organic performance and the recent IP acquisitions, e.g. Deadside. There was only one game released during H1 2022, and 99% of revenue came from the back catalogue, so we can expect H2 revenue to be boosted by the release of eight new titles. Yeah, pretty much all the releases were backloaded to the second half of the year, so uh, pretty phenomenal that they um, had such good performance in the first half when it was all coming from uh, the uh, 99%, so pretty much all of it coming from the back catalogue. Um, breaking down the revenues by class, we can see that development services made up a much larger share of H1 revenues in 2022 and in 2021. Red Cerberus is likely to have contributed to this along with payments for platform deals signed ahead of game releases in H2 2022. Yeah, so um, 
it was development services were 11,134,000 and they were 224,000 in H1 2021. Games and merchandise royalty revenues can again be divided into own IP of 13,107,000 versus uh, 14 million one hundred thousand for H1 2021 and third party IP of four million three hundred and fifty nine thousand H1 2022 was four million and fifty thousand. So um yeah just a point here that the games and much like royalties revenue actually decreased but it the development services revenue you know massively increased so it was um yeah one co overcompensate for the other and like I say, a lot of this is because of the we've got some development services stuff from Red Cerberus, but also largely it's going to be prepayments from Microsoft or whatever for the releasing their games, the new, the upcoming releases for the second half of the year on their on their platforms, giving them payments to get them sort of pre-locked in to put onto their uh, put the games on their subscription service. Um. You'll notice that the contribution from own IP as a percentage of royalty revenues decreased from the previous year, 75% versus 78%, while the percentage of overall revenues increased, 83% versus 78%. This was due to a greater share of own IP revenues coming from development services in H1 2022. Looking back over revenue figures for the, for the, uh, the management has provided, which includes a number of years when the company was unlisted, we can see very substantial sustained growth at a compound annual rate of 44.56%. So going from 11.94 uh, million dollars in 2017 to 52.15 million dollars in 2021. Gross margins have shown a similarly positive trend with the move towards first and second party publishing. And you can see here, yeah, we've gone from 48.48% gross margin in 2017, dipped down to 44% in 2018, but then climbed each year up to 65.27% in 2021. So yeah, this is with that move towards the first and second party publishing and bringing in the own IP, it has significantly increased the uh, gross margins by sort of close to 20%. Um, so net income has been a little more bumpy with some negative years, but the overall growth has been, has been sizable and it looks set to remain more sustainably positive now the company has grown and diversified. Yeah, so we had a couple of 2019 was a negative year, 2017 was a negative year, but the last um, 2020 and 2021 both positive and also 2018. Um, yeah, and you've got to remember this is a rapidly growing company, and uh, so that with the expansion of their IP and revenue base and what have it, you know, sources of revenue and so on, and and business model expanding out into from 2017 they when they bought in that time they've developed their first franchise and uh 
started doing the games as a service so all this stuff's happened very rapidly in that period so the the business back in 2017 was pretty unrecognizable compared to the business today um much more of the third party focused um and still dependent on the third party releases and this is the kind of thing you see much more with the purely third party publishers is where they don't have their own ip like i think devolver digitals a bit like um would fit that bill for instance and they're still having the big swings from year to year and the um going in negative some years and so on this shift away from that really uh leads to the sustained positive profitability over time without the sort of cyclicality elements to it certainly to the same degree Right, so let's have a look at, let me just have a quick sip of water. Right, so let's have a quick look at the balance sheet. So at the 30th of June 2022, Tiny Build had total assets of 127,226,000, of which 70,183,000 were non-current and 57 million and 43,000 were current. The vast majority of the non-current assets are intangible. 69 million and 19,000. Split between split oh, split into software development costs of 29,728,000, purchased intellectual property of 20,439,000. Customer relationships of three million nine hundred six thousand, brands of one million seven hundred forty four thousand, and goodwill of thirteen million two hundred twenty thousand. Now, of course, with this, um, when you're seeing like things like brands and and uh, goodwill and customer relationships, those are all things, or even intellectual property, those are all things that are only recognised when they have made an acquisition. So, internally developed IP and stuff like that, I, I wouldn't think would appear on the balance sheet at all um, in this form so uh, yeah in the future you, you can expect a lot of this to be potentially understated as well in terms of the, the actual cash generative power of the of the company will be substantially more potentially than what we're seeing on the balance sheet here um, so yeah current assets comprised Fourteen million four hundred thirty-one thousand dollars of trade and other receivables, and forty-two million six hundred twelve thousand dollars of cash and cash equivalents. So yeah, some of this is the proceeds from the IPO, of course, and that, but a lot of that's been deployed, and then the rest of it is going to be just what their operations been generating, which is substantial. Um, all software development costs are capitalized and so recognized as an asset on the balance sheet, which is amortized over time, allowing them to be matched to the subsequent revenues they generate. These costs largely relate to amounts paid to external developers, consultancy costs, and, uh, and the direct payroll costs of the internal development teams. External software development costs are amortized over the life of the game, which varies with the game's success, but internally but internal software development costs are amortized over a fixed period, usually one to two years. In both cases, amortization begins once the game is released. Looking at the other intangible assets, brands are amortized on a straight line basis over 15 years, and both customer relationships and intellectual property are amortized on a straight line basis over seven years. 
On the other side of the ledger were total liabilities of 23,961,000 with 9,253,000 of this non-current and 14,708,000 current. The non-current components were contingent consideration of uh, 6,336,000, deferred tax liabilities of 2,716,000 and lease liabilities of 201,000. Contingent consideration relates to the expected value in shares that will be issued to satisfy deferred payments for acquisitions, as we talked about previously. Um, yeah, and you notice that the non-current component there was 6.336 million, uh, which is what I was sort of saying. And then you see here in the current that it was it's 4.793 million. Uh, contingent consideration is, is owed, is expected to be owed in the coming year. Uh, yeah, so current liabilities include trade and other payables of 9,647,000, sorry, 45,000, contingent consideration of 4,793,000, and lease liabilities of 270,000. The current liabilities are well covered by current assets with a current ratio of 3.88 or 5.75 if you exclude the contingent consideration. So it's also worth noting, um, I haven't really talked about it here, but the uh, the trade and other receivables that I mentioned, um, which were 14.431 million dollars, those are all pretty much all owed by the the large um, distribution platforms, Steam. Epic Games, Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony, and so on, um, and so pretty pretty low default risk. But I think the terms are normally like thirty to forty five days or something. So uh, um, they, when the company the company recognizes the revenue uh, immediately on the sale of a game, they're notified that the sale's been made, but they won't actually receive the cash for another thirty to 45 days afterwards is how it normally works um, but yeah they've never had a default and it's pretty unlikely that any of them will default um, just good to know that they are quite concentrated between a, a relatively small group of albeit blue chip um, customers in this sense for the actual payment of the uh, of the cash Um, right, so subtracting the total liabilities from the total assets gives us the total equity of $103,250,000 of which is attributable to shareholders. So the other 15000 is attributable to non-controlling entities. In this case, I think it will be Lerica Malieva. Using the average equity figure for financial year 2021 of 67,601,000 and the operating profit for the same year of 12,532,000, we can calculate the return on equity, ROE, as 18.5%.
This figure is being somewhat depressed by the substantial amount of cash on the balance sheet. I expect ROE to be significantly higher once this cash is deployed into productive assets. It's also worth mentioning that while the company doesn't currently have any debt on their balance sheet, it does have $35 million a sorry, it does have a $35 million credit facility set up by, with Bank of America, which is in so not Silicon Valley Bank for anybody that's worried about that. Um, which is intended as a source of cash should it be required for future acquisitions. As with the most recent filings, this facility was undrawn. Cash flows. For the year ended 31st of December 2021, cash flows from operations were $13,290,000 compared to financial year 2020 of $16,470,000. The decrease from the previous year was due predominantly to the increase in receivables exceeding the increase in payables in 2021. The princely sum of $37,656,000 was invested during the year compared to financial year 2020 of 7,143,000. So this figure is split between 11,784,000 for the acquisition of subsidiaries net of cash acquired, 15,085,000 for software development, and 10,832,000 for the purchase of intellectual property. This investment was in part funded by the proceeds of share issuances during the year, which amounted to 46,839,000 net of transaction costs. So a lot of that would have come from the IPO. The overall net increase in operating cash during the year came to 22,519,000 compared to financial year 2020 of 9,304,000. It's important to note that the company was highly cash generative before the IPO and would have been able to sustainably grow even with without ongoing sorry, even without going public. The funds raised have simply accelerated growth. In H1 2022, cash generated from operations was eight million eight hundred and eleven thousand, compared to H1 2021 of five hundred and seventy thousand used in operations as opposed to generated. Um, a total of 14,245,000 was invested in software development and 554,000 in property, plant and equipment. So I think a lot of that was to do with setting up offices uh, for the relocated development teams from Russia and Ukraine. There wasn't much in the in the way of financing activities beyond the payment of $148,000 in dividends to a non-controlling interest related to DevGam LLC. So we talked about already. That was the, probably the, um, well, no, it was the, the payment of dividends to Lerica. Um, the net movement of cash during the period was a decrease of $6,220,000. Looking back over the operating cash flows for the last five years, we can see substantial growth. So they've gone from just over a million in 2017 to 13.29 million 
in 2021, which is down a little bit from 16.47 million in 2020. So another quick sip, and we'll have a look at management. The company's chief executive officer and founder is Alex Nishiporchik. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, prior to founding TinyBuild, Alex was a pro gamer and games journalist. He has since produced over 20 games and led the way in building the company's marketing, including forming relationships with key influencers. From the earnings calls, Alex comes across as highly competent with a very clear vision and strategy for the company. He also holds a very substantial stake, amounting to 37.8% of the shares outstanding, making him well aligned with other shareholders. Luke Burtis is also a founder and serves as the company's chief operating officer. He has established long-term partnerships with over 50 developers as well as multiple global distribution platforms and built the team from three employees in 2013 to 127 across the globe at year-end 2021. Luke and others close to him hold a stake in the company equating to 7% of the shares outstanding. Tony Asenza is the company's chief financial officer. He has completed six acquisitions, managed multiple investments into TinyBuild and built the financial infrastructure to deal with the company's growth. I believe TinyBuild is his first major role but he too comes across well in the earnings calls with an obvious understanding of the economics of the business. The company's chairman is Henrique Oliviers, Oliviers, CEO and co-founder of London-based games developer and publisher Bossa Studios. Henrique has 23 years games industry experience including working at Jagex and Playfix, at Playfish, so I know Jagex makes, maids, makes RuneScape. Um, and they're based in Cambridge, I believe, in the UK. The company has two non-executive directors, the first of which is Neil Cato, CFO of AIM-listed Boohoo Group, PLC. Neil is also a qualified chartered accountant. The second non-executive director is Nick Van Dyke. I keep every time I read that I keep thinking of Dick Van Dyke, which is obviously the famous actor from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Anyway, uh, Nick Van Dyke with an N, um, co-president of Activision Blizzard Studios from 2015 to 2019, and before that, senior VP of the Walt Disney Company. He has more than 20 years' experience in the entertainment industry. The guy is a heavy hitter and brings valuable knowledge about developing games as a service products and franchises. Uh, yeah, franchises obviously being a key component of Walt Disney's business model, for instance. Um, executive compensation includes a base salary, cash bonus, sorry, cash based bonus, and stock options. For financial year 2021, the base salaries were $350,000, $308,000, and $220,000 for the CEO, COO, and CFO, respectively. All three received the same annual bonus of $420,000. Alex Nishiporchik and Luke Bertis 
both retain significant equity stakes in the company on IPO and so were not issued any stock options in the year. Tony Ascenza was granted 125,931 options with an exercise price of $1.59 per share. These are now underwater and will expire on the 1st of February 2031 unless exercised. I expect the, the Employee Benefit Trust will be offsetting any future shareholder dilution from equity-based executive compensation by purchasing an equivalent number of shares on the market. Annual bonus awards and I expect future stock options also are dependent in equal measure on revenue and adjusted EBITDA. The, the targets are not specified for financial year 2021, but I prefer this I'd prefer this to be earnings per share which defends against excessive use of stock in acquisitions but we'll have to rely on management substantial equity stakes to disincentivize earnings dilution yeah, so I met, talked about that earlier and I said I'd put a question in for the um, the earnings call on I believe the 30th of March so I'll we'll have to see if they respond to that question they get to it in the, the list I think there's going to be a lot of questions but Maybe getting it in early before the call might might be there. We'll see. Um, I did do it for another company before, and it was the first question asked. So <laughs> maybe maybe the fact that I've done it a couple of weeks in advance uh, might mean it gets answered. We'll see. Uh, the other directors are paid an annual fee, which was one hundred twenty thousand dollars for Enrique Olivier's. $70,000 for Neil Cato and $100,000 for Nick Van Dyke. Henrique's fee for 2021 was satisfied with the allotment of 51,454 shares at the placing price. Other major shareholders were Swedbank Robur AB at uh, sorry with 8.2% NetEase with 6.3% and Franklin Templeton Investments with 5%. It's worth noting that NetEase was um, a company, a Chinese uh, company. They, uh, I think it probably venture capital or something like that, the Chinese venture capital, um, which gave them some initial uh, pre-IPO capital uh, while they were still a private company uh, to help them grow a little bit. I think that was perhaps back in 2018 or something. If I'm remembering correctly, but yeah, they as part of that they've obviously retained a 6.3% stake in the company. So finally, let's have a quick look at the valuation. Um, and it, it really doesn't take much of a look to realise this is uh, pretty crazily cheap. So um, let's have a look. It doesn't take much torturing of the numbers to see this company is incredibly cheap. On some simple valuation metrics like trailing PE. POCF, the price to operating cash flows, and even PB, price to book. The company is very modestly priced when compared to the strength of its business model and long runway for growth. Using a market capitalization of $125.56 million, uh, so changing it to dollars for easy comparison with the, the uh, financials, which are actually all in dollars. Uh, but the actual share is actually listed in pounds um, or a share price of 62 cents its trailing PE POCF and PB are 9.7 5.5 and 1.2 respectively 
with these numbers you're literally paying for zero growth when you realize that these multiples are being applied to a company that has grown revenue and cash flows from operations over the last five years at compound rates of 44.56% and 87.29% respectively, you can see there's a yawning chasm between price and value. So yeah, it's uh, probably the most promising company in my portfolio, just getting a company that grows like this, uh, that's growing like this with this kind of quality of business for this kind of price is uh, very, very rare indeed. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very bullish on it. That my only, my only major concern really is the earn is the shared dilution, but they are definitely taking steps in the right direction with that. Recognizing the future acquisitions are going to be much more heavily focused on cash uh, payments rather than shares. I think there will still be some shares issued, but probably substantially less than they were doing before, and the share price was a lot higher. And um, and that's you know evidenced by the fact that they've got this this uh, credit facility in place now, which they didn't have before, um, or not not to the same level. I think it was just a year long, and it was probably just um, ten million dollars, something like that, it's, or maybe I think it might have been twenty five million. But it was completely undrawn before, and they now extended it three years, and it's now thirty five million dollars. And um, and the fact that they've got this employee benefit trust in place to purchase shares on the open market um, to then be used to issued out for like paying the executives and the and company-wide um, compensation as well. I think everybody's able to participate in uh, probably sh uh, share matching schemes and so on. So um, yeah, it's uh, they're definitely moving in the right direction and it's, it gives you a lot of uh, comfort that the management has such substantial stakes so 7.8 and 7% respectively for the two main guys and then um, obviously uh, the CFO is building up his stake I'm not, they don't specify any like minimum requirements whether he has to get to like 200% of his salary or something like that minimal but um, but maybe that'll be told, we'll be told that in future years but anyway um, the main decision makers being the uh, CEO and CEO and COO are uh, and have massive stakes in the company, so uh, massively their interests are certainly aligned, and they're going to be wanting to avoid dilution as much as as much as we are. So um, yeah, very promising. Uh, very happy with it. I've built up a position myself. I've it's been a company I've been following since the IPO. I did actually have a small position soon after the IPO when I, I wasn't so focused on the on value at the time but and it did actually uh i think it did end up at something like falling 80 percent or something from the price i bought it around about two pound 50 a share or something but like i say it was just a small position at that time and it it's nice it's been nice to actually still i just held it in my portfolio all that time as it dropped because i could see the quality of the company back then but like I say, it wasn't paying as much attention as I should have been to the valuation. But yeah, it's it's just a nice for my own um, my own sort of investment process and so on to be able to go back to a company that I've effectively lost eighty percent on and say, "Wow, this is uh, now an absolute screaming bargain," and I paid too much for it before, but um, potentially uh, it probably would still work out um, in the long term. But 
in certainly in hindsight, it looked like it had played too much. Uh, but now being able to get it at sort of a below 10 PE, uh, just crazy. And uh, going back through the company and revisiting it as I have done, putting in all the work now to, to do this write-up. And um, yeah, and, and massively increasing my position from, from what it was before. So uh, yeah. Anyway, that's all I've got. So um, yeah, thanks for reading and, and go over, you can read the full write-up over on firmreturns.com. I'll I'll probably put a link in the description to this podcast, the notes of this podcast anyway. But yeah, have a look at firmreturns.com and you'll find um, various other things on there and more information. If, they, if you happen to have stumbled across this podcast, there's sort of uh, and, and a readme page to find out a bit more about um, the newsletter. You know, you can subscribe to other issues of the newsletter to get them straight in your inbox. It's all free. Um, yeah, I'm also on Twitter at firm returns um capital f capital r yeah um but yeah thanks a lot for for listening i'll see you all on the next one